The following conversation with Dave Elsula about the Detroit Red Squad Files originally aired on February 12th, 2021 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Dave Elsel, I've got you on the phone from Detroit. Yep, Michael, so good to hear from you. I uh, really enjoyed the uh, songs you've been playing. Uh, they bring back a lot of memories. Uh, and uh, I was recalled, with, with recalling when you played uh, Betty Sanders doing the Talking on American Blues. I think I was about 14 years old, and I had a... 78 a recording of uh, of that song that I used to play uh, when I was when I was a, a high school student, uh, and yeah. that I haven't haven't heard I have not heard it since. But uh, gee, thanks for thanks for the memory. Yeah, um, for those of you out there who are who are too young to know, just you're going to have to Google 78 RPM to understand what we're talking about here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my first 78 RPM was Elvis Presley uh, singing "Hound Dog." So, <laughs> we had a little okay. bit different growing up experiences, Dave. So, Dave Elsel and I just uh, as a disclosure, Dave Elsel and I clo- worked very very closely together on Solidarity Magazine at the United Auto Workers Union. Uh, I was there from uh, 88 to 2000, and uh, Dave is, uh, in my humble opinion, in my opinion, Dave is uh, uh, the the best u- labor union editor since Eugene V. Debs. He's retired in, when did you retire, 89 or something like that? Uh, 98. 98, I'm sorry. 98, okay. of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I wanted to have Dave on the show because... Um, uh, we don't know. We had a little email exchange, and he was telling me that he was going through his Red Squad files and and just sort of you know, and and remembering and and seeing some of the stuff that was in his files. And and uh, as I said, you know, um, the files became available, and I'll let Dave tell the story uh, of how they became available down the line at, at a certain point. But I think we want to start, Dave, if it's okay. Um, you were born in 1939. And uh, give us a little sense of, of uh, what, you know, you're growing up, where you grew up, your family, et cetera. Yeah, well, I was born in Detroit, uh, and uh, when I was a, a young person, uh, maybe seven years old, uh, our family moved uh, to Redford Township, which was the uh, closest uh, suburb uh, to the west of Detroit. And uh, so I, I grew up there, and I uh, went to school uh, uh, there. My father was a, a factory worker, and... Uh, my mother uh, worked in uh, serving banquets at uh, at conventions, and uh, she also worked in the school cafeteria. And it was kind of a working class uh, suburb. Um, they, my family was a church growing family. They were probably conservative dem- Democrats. Uh, didn't talk a, a lot about politics, uh, but uh, I had some influences on the outside. Uh, and Michael, you'll appreciate this. I think being a radio host, uh, that my first. Uh, encounter with uh, a political and social movement was by listening to the radio. I was getting dressed for high school one morning, and I turned on CKLW, one of the local radio stations uh, from across the river in Canada, and I heard this drive-time show called Eye Opener that the UAW was sponsoring uh, every morning, and it had a mix of of music and sports and uh, news and political and social commentary, and it was that radio show 
with its uh, comments and, and descriptions of economic inequality and racism and other social issues that really got me moving into a kind of a, a progressive political direction. And uh, I was only 14 years old at the time, but uh, I really appreciated what uh, the people on that radio show were saying. So radio is a powerful weapon. Indeed, you it is. Know. It is. And, and later on in high school, you were telling me that you... Um you came across some interesting information in your in your high school library. I was a library assistant for one hour a day, and and uh, our librarian, who was kind of a straight laced, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, conservative person, had a file in the uh, back of the stacks, and the file said communist propaganda. Well, I was curious, you know, what is communist propaganda? I opened it up. There were copies of the Nation magazine and the New Republic magazine, liberal publications. Uh, that had a progressive uh, point of view, and I started reading them, and, uh, boy, I became more and more convinced that, along with the radio show, that, uh, that, that uh, progressive, progressive politics and, um, and their, their, their look at social and economic issues was uh, really called out for me. And uh, you told me that Guy Nunn was uh, the radio show host that, that uh, sort of helped to school you. What about some other folks? You Did you have any teachers or any other yeah, I had two or three uh, really good teachers uh, that uh, were mentors, and uh, uh, one of the women who lived in our neighborhood, who I met, uh, Ethel Schwartz, I think you may remember her from sure. your time in, in uh, Detroit, uh, was a uh, was a strong mentor. And uh, in fact, uh, Ethel and I, uh, at one point in our all-white community, uh, organized a, uh, a human rights work group, uh, Red Foot Citizens for Better Human Relations, and uh, we did a lot of the educational and uh, other kinds of work there. And you also became aware of uh, the Progressive Party campaigns. I don't know if you, were you aware of it in 1948? They also ran candidates in 1952. This was a third party movement in, this, in the U.S., yeah, I, I was not aware of it in 1948. I was too young at the time. But by 1952, um, the Progressive Party was running a guy named Vincent Hallinan, who was a lawyer from San Francisco as a, a presidential candidate, and Charlotte Bass, uh, who published a black newspaper in, in California, who was uh, the first African-American woman uh, to uh, run for vice president of the United States. And I had an opportunity to hear uh, Vincent Hallen in, along with Paul Robeson at the old Madison Ballroom on Woodward Avenue in uh, in Detroit during that campaign. And, uh, you know, we ran a mock student election at my high school, and the Progressive Party got uh, 19 votes. So I think we got more votes than the, than the Prohibition Party, which was also on the ballot. But uh, the Democratic candidate won. Uh, so you saw Paul Robeson? I did. Wow. That, I saw, I, I, that's I saw awesome. Him twice. I, I saw him then, and then many, many years later, he sang in Detroit at the Hartford Avenue Baptist Church uh, and uh, during the blacklist period, and I borrowed my father's car, went down, and heard him sing at the church, and uh, uh, lo and behold, my father got a Red Squad file uh, out of that because I had borrowed his car, and they took down his license plate number. <laughs> uh, and you also uh, became aware of Pete Seeger and the Weavers somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line, I'm not quite sure where I first heard them, uh, but I, I, I saw the Weavers on television. I liked their music, and uh, of course, uh, Pete was one of the Weavers. And 
1955, uh, I had an opportunity as a member of the Student Council Program Committee to organize a, a, a monthly program uh, for high school students. And so I said, let's bring in Pete. And uh, Pete was blacklisted at the time. He was singing in high schools and colleges and so he came in to sing at our high school um, and uh, spent an hour with the students. Everybody paid a dime uh, to get in, and I think we were able to pay Pete $60. Uh, he sang, and uh, kids really loved him. They sang along. But the chilling part of all of this is that the next day, two government agents uh, showed up at our high school in Redford Township and uh, quizzed the principal of the high school about the words to the songs that Mr. Seeger had sung. And that was my first encounter uh, with, with, uh, with, with government spying uh, to, to, hit, to have that kind of an incident occur. You said that a teacher told you about that? Yeah, a teacher told me about that, yeah. Uh, what did you think? I mean, do you rem- I mean I, obviously it's so long ago you were 16 years old, but that must have been kind of a strange feeling. It was, it was chilling, yeah. It was chilling to think that... Uh, that government agents, I don't know whether they were from the FBI or the local Red Squad or what, uh, would be interested in, in the words to, to songs, to music. And, and what was happening in a high school, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, it's very interesting because, of course, as you said, Pete, Pete was blacklisted during that period. And as I've said before on this show, that was um, that was a period where, as you said, he was, you know, he basically was doing concerts at high schools and colleges around the country. And I'm sure that some of the kids that uh, that that heard him at your high school, that when you brought him there, they were probably moved by that. So it's kind of a kind of a thing where it's like, be careful what you ask for. You blacklist Pete Seeger, and then he goes around the country and he, and he uh, turns all these kids into a bunch of progressives. <laughs> Many many years later, I think I was at my 50th high school reunion, and one of the guys came up to me and said, Dave, I really, really want to thank you for bringing Pete Seeger to our school so many years ago. Wow. I thought, gee, that's really, really wonderful to hear that kind of uh, comment. Yeah, that's phenomenal, man. That's great. Yeah, for for listeners who have just turned in, uh, this is Michael Funky. This is the Radical Songbook. I'm talking with my friend Dave Elsley in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we'll be talking, he's been talking about his growing up and becoming politically active there, and we'll be talking about... Um, basically uh, being spied upon. And so that was your first experience to, uh, I guess the, the the agents, to your knowledge, they didn't ask about anything about you. They just asked about Pete. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, so then, uh, you know, a few years later, you graduate from high school and you went on to college. Where'd you go to college? I went to Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. Uh, some, it's, it's between Detroit and Ann Arbor. Yeah. And, uh, I became uh, active with the Young Democrats there, became president of the Young Democrats, and uh, we brought in as one of our speakers, Guy Nunn, who had been the uh, host of the UAW radio program, Eye Opener, and uh, he spoke to us, and we had a number of speakers from uh, from the progressive community and the Democratic Party uh, during my years there. Yeah. Did, did, you, uh, did you run into any problems doing that kind of stuff in college? No, no, not not at all. Uh, things were, uh, yeah, I, I think we had pretty progressive administration and uh, a lot of good uh, friends, progressive friends in uh, the college, uh, among the college students, no. And then um, you graduated and, what, you became a teacher, right? I became a teacher, right. Uh, and uh, I was uh, in the uh, 
district right next to Redford Township in Livonia and uh, taught there for four years before going to work for the American Federation of Teachers uh, as editor of uh, the American Teaching Publication. Yeah, how did how did that happen? You were a teacher, and and had you did you have uh, did you have high school or college uh, journalism experience? I was the editor of the college newspaper and the editor of my high school paper. Yeah, so I had experience and interest, and uh, and I taught journalism actually among other classes. Uh, oh, okay. In my eighth grade students. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, when you got once you got into you became a teacher and you joined your union, uh, it was. You know, uh, you you eventually became, you were you became the, well the AFT the American Federation of Teachers were they were they headquartered in the Detroit area? No, they're headquartered in uh, Chicago. Oh, and Chicago. So, uh, when I after a teacher for four years, moved to Chicago and uh, joined the AFT staff there, and then eventually the AFT moved to Washington D.C. and I lived there for several years. Right. Yeah. And so um, let me get back to the. The narrative here. So, so essentially, you became part of the labor movement. Not that wasn't too many years after being in college, I guess, huh? Right, right, right. And yeah, you also there, oh, go ahead. Yeah, there, there was one thing I wanted to say. While I was teaching, uh, I was also continuing to be active in my hometown in Redford, uh, along with Ethel. Uh, and uh, one of the things that our our human rights committee did was to uh, organize a. Uh, mass march for open housing in our all-white community and uh, uh, in the spring of, or in July of, uh, of 19 or June of 1963 uh, we brought in uh, about 100, 100, 100 to 200 people who demonstrated uh, on, in a parade and at the steps of the township hall for an end to residential segregation and open housing and we we had uh, participation from uh, uh, the, our community and from Detroit, and uh, as a result of that, one of the local newspapers, uh, uh, which was really a racist rag, uh, pilloried us on the front page of their publication. Uh, they had our photographs, they had our home addresses, and uh, the headline actually read, Elsula wants color to live in in uh, Redford. And uh, so that was a pretty uh, startling uh, thing at that time. And uh, in my school, where I was teaching, uh, some of the janitors uh, posted that uh, photograph, the paper with the photograph, on the walls in the uh, custodian's room. And uh, so it was a little bit of, um, of a shock to see that, uh, you know, that I'd get that kind of negative reaction. Well, yeah, that's sad to hear that that, that the custodians workers uh, did that but uh, clearly um, it's not by accident that uh, and you're not the only person that this happened to back then and uh, it's much more sophisticated uh, this nowadays but by by printing in the caption your home address that's actually in my view that's like sending a message to the reader um, oh if you know if you're if you're upset about this and you want to go harass Dave Elsala Here's where he lives, and you were living okay, with your right. parents at the time, right? I was. So, yeah, I had a, I had an old friend who's long ago passed away in Petaluma, California, who had the same thing happen to him, and and he he lived in the outskirts of Petaluma. If the Argus Courier uh, posted his name, 
uh, and photograph, a photograph and a, and a caption with his address and labeled him a communist. And, and he was, he had people came, you know, out to where he lived and, and were, you know, driving by his house and, you know, basically, you know, just kind of, um, making it known to him that, uh, they know where he lives. Of course, nowadays, um, it's much more sophisticated what people are able to do in terms of harassing uh, people right. that they disagree with politically. Um, but, so, but one thing I wanted to say, uh, the work that we did back then has really paid off. Uh, over the years uh, since we organized that committee, uh, the, the minority popula- population in Redford has really increased, and now African Americans make up uh, at least a third of the uh, of the community, and so there has been progress. The first time uh, a, a black family moved into Redford, a cross was burned on their lawn. So there's been tremendous progress over the years in, in terms of uh, bringing uh, a more diverse population to the community. Okay. Um, let me see. I want to make sure I don't lose track of where I am here. I appreciate you're doing this. Is it snowing in Detroit? It is uh, 21 degrees here. There is a blanket of snow on the ground, uh, and it's pretty chilly. I've been trying to go out for a walk every day, but uh, yeah. I think it's a little bit too cold today. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a little chilly here too. We got some snow. So, um, so you you mentioned that the, these custodians had posted, you know, your the, that article. Um, were there any other times that during this period, um, when you were a young man, where you were, where you felt threatened or harassed, or 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 did or were you, or were you ever like uh, did you get letters or phone calls did you ever um get the feeling get the feeling that you were being watched maybe i don't think i was being watched uh, by authorities i hope i wasn't anyway at that time, at that time anyway but uh while i was teaching uh, there was a uh, you know radio call in show and uh, some guy in the community who later identified himself as a member of the American Nazi Party, actually, uh, called into the radio show and said there was a communist teaching at uh, Bryant Junior High School and uh, identified me by name. There were no repercussions. I didn't have any any problems with my job. Uh, but uh, there was that kind of uh, that, that harassment that occurred. Yeah, and I think that happened to, obviously, we know that that happened to thousands and thousands, uh, if not millions, of uh, Americans during that period. Um, that's, that, that's right. When I got my Red Squad files, uh, I discovered that they had 100,000 dossiers on uh, people in Detroit. 100,000. I was only one of 100,000. Yeah, right. But but I think the important, uh, yeah, you're one of a, only one of 100,000, but I think the important thing here, and I think the message for listeners is that you know, I mean, you weren't a wild-eyed radical uh, at that time, and and uh, I don't know if you've ever been wild. I don't think you've ever been a wild-eyed radical, and and you know the idea that uh, uh, that that you would be spied upon uh, at you know, and basically that the that the uh, government would be taking notice of you at such a young age is just an example of how you know it happened to so many people, uh, and it's really um, you know sort of exemplifies what was happening to people at that time. Yeah, it was, it was really surprising. I mean, when I got my Red Squad files, I think you were with me when we went down. I was. Downtown Detroit, right, and and picked up uh, 300 to 400 pages of uh, files, and I was really amazed. I had forgotten that I had been to a lot of these 
events, meetings and picket lines and so on, but there I was. They had a, they, both the Michigan State Police and the Detroit Police Department had people surveilling uh, a lot of these events. And I think, uh, I think I mentioned to you uh, in one of our earlier conversations that the first report in my, in my file was from 1958. I was 19 years old, and I went to the Dairy Workers Hall in, in Detroit, uh, and uh, it was a Pete Seeger concert with Pete Seeger and Sonny Terry, sponsored by a group called the Detroit Labor Forum, and uh, there were spies inside who took down the names of everybody they could re- that they could recognize. There are 1,200 people in the concert and a lot of names uh, on the list. But then they went out to the parking lot and they actually took down the license plate numbers of all of the cars parked in the lot. They went up to Lansing. Remember, this was before computers. And they went up to the state capitol and, and meticulously identified the names and home addresses of every one of the people to whom those cars were registered, and and printed them out, typed them out, in nine pages of uh, of lists. And uh, it's just amazing that they would go through all of that trouble just to, because people were at a concert uh, of Pete Seeger and Sonny Terry. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think during that time, a lot of a lot of the work that. Uh a lot of the 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 effort that that agents put into that i mean it was kind of like you know j edgar hoover and and uh and the chief of police and the chief of the state police the you know and the, all the the right wingers in congress were demanding action and so um it kind of became job security right i mean you had to if you were a cop uh and your you know your job was to uh, spy on people then you know, that's a good way, you know, what you're describing, like going to a, a union hall, the Dairy Workers Hall, and, and uh, trying to identify the car, the license plates of everybody who's parked there. It's a good way to spend the day, right? So, you you know, it's like, uh, you know, so it is kind of, it's part of your job and it becomes part of the job security. Um, so that was when you were 19 years old. Um, yeah. And you said that there was... Uh, a note that uh, about the the concert attendees that was uh, that was in oh, that yeah. file. I'm, I'm, that's right. On the reports that is in the Red Squad file, on the reports where they list all of the names, some of the names had an asterisk next to them, and uh, there was a little note at the beginning saying asterisk equals Negro, uh, and uh, so they were identifying people by by color. Yeah, and so that was the earliest thing that you found. So let's go back. Yeah, I do remember when you. Uh, I mean, I, we we worked together. Dave and I worked together on the Sol- on Solidarity Magazine at the United Auto Workers. And I remember, um, you know, one day you came into my office and said, "You want to go downtown with me at, at lunch when I pick up my Red Squad files?" And I was basically like, "What are Red Squad files?" I mean, I kind of knew what you were talking about, but I thought, "Really?" So I remember we went down to that building. I think you said it was the Palms Building, and uh, uh, I, I we went upstairs, and and I I'm not sure if it wasn't. Uh, there were there were people that there were when the Red Squad. Maybe you should back up a little bit and explain to people if you can if you can. How did you get from how did it, how did things get from the 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 police, state police, the feds, the city police compiling your file and you getting it? What well, there was some legal action that that occurred. Yeah, back in the nineteen seventies, the. In the 1970s, um, the um, 
there was a group of Detroiters uh, led by uh, a couple of people I know uh, who filed a lawsuit to try to get the names of, uh, try to get the records for everybody who uh, had been spied on, both by the Michigan State Police and by the Detroit Police Department. And the lawsuit took, I think, 17 years before it was uh, finalized. And eventually, in 1991, uh, the uh, courts ruled that the Detroit Police Department had to give up its files. And so their committee was formed uh, to uh, compile them and to get them out to uh, anybody who had been spied on. And there was a general announcement in the news media, and people could file an application, go down and show your ID and pick up your files. Uh, that's how I found out about it. And and they uh, that that resulted in actually um, some work for people because that they had to hire a bunch of people. And I think we knew some of the people that they hired. The late Dave Riddle was one of them, and and uh, yeah. I think uh, yeah, and and uh, Elena uh, uh, and pe- people who were hired to actually sift through all these files and sort of sort of make copies and separate them out because, of course, there'd be a file that would have three or four names on it and somebody would have to make copies for each of the people whose name was on that file and then compile those files. It was a very time-consuming uh, process. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's been 30 years now since they've been released, uh, and I think now uh, they can be put into uh, archives that will be viewable by the general public. Uh, and when, I, when I looked at the List from the uh, Pete Seeger concert. Uh, I found the name of a future congressperson from uh, one of the Detroit suburbs uh, who was on that list. Who was apparently at the concert, and many, many other people who, uh, many of whom have died since. But uh, you know, there is a sense of wanting to keep uh, some some privacy uh, issues. Um, uh, in, involved, uh, not right. to release a lot of these names to the public. Right. But I, a couple of examples of how. Uh, ridiculous the uh, spies were. I went to a um, an event at the Friday Night Socialist Forum once in Detroit, and they were having a, a recreation of a play uh, that had been produced originally in 1959 about the debate between John Brown and Frederick Douglass uh, over the issue of how to fight slavery most effectively. And John Brown took the uh, position that we need armed struggle. Frederick Douglass said, "No, let's let's do peaceful uh, pr- pr- peaceful resistance." Uh, and so the FBI agent who was at that same meeting went back and filed a report that was in the Red Squad files that said, "We'd better watch out for this John Brown character, but Frederick Douglass, he sounds okay." <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, that's yeah. <laughs> More than a hundred years after both of them had died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the FBI didn't necessarily, or the you know, the these 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 spies weren't necessarily the brightest bulbs in the. Uh, yeah. No, they were not. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. That that was. I remember you telling me that story. It's really hilarious. Now, I, I'm just looking at some notes here that, that you sent to me. Um, well, it, it, you said that. It, does your file include this this uh, picnic you went to where you heard uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn? No, no, it didn't. Oh. I was under the radar then, I guess. So, but you did, you did hear Elizabeth Gurley Flynn speak. I did. Yeah, uh, I'm reading that uh, book. I'm reading that book, uh, 
cold, the cold millions by uh, Jess uh, Walter right now, and she's a featured uh-huh. uh, character in it about the wobbly fights up, up in Spokane in the early 1900s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Elizabeth Brewerthling spoke, and uh, while she was speaking at this picnic, uh, there was a helicopter that kept circling overhead and overhead. You know, you don't have to have helicopters these days. You can use drones, I guess, to spy. But, yeah. Uh, I, back I, then, it was pretty intimidating. I think by then, she may have been. She, she in the later years of her life, she joined the Communist Party, and I think that uh, probably... Uh, would freaked out a lot of people because she had that that's like she was an activist for almost uh well certainly the first half of the uh of the 1900s so so what what are one of the things that i recall um let me just break here and let let people know that uh you are listening to the radical songbook and i'm talking to dave elsel in detroit about his red squad files some 400 pages of files that were compiled about him um in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, I guess, uh, probably, maybe beyond that, I don't know. But one of the one of the things that I remember when you and I went to uh, pick up your files and you were thumbing through them, uh, either in the car while we, I mean, we start you started thumbing through them while we were just sitting in the car, uh, and and over lunch and then home. One of the things that really struck me was there was a there was your wedding photo was in this file. Yep. That was the most astounding thing uh, that, that I, I saw. They had clipped out the photograph and the story about the wedding between me and my wife, Katie, uh, in 1965, and put it into the file without any commentary. You know, it was just the, the picture and the story. Yeah, and I remember that the file also had that photo that you alluded to earlier of you from the the suburban newspaper uh, where you yeah. were out partitioning, where they, they uh, identified... Uh, the address where you where you lived. Um, yes. So, um, so what were some of the other? So, so in a sense, the Red Squad files, your Red Squad files, by going through them, it's 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 enabled you to remember some events that you might have forgotten. Eh. It, it's amazing how how uh, pervasive they were in terms of trying to identify any anti-racist, any anti any anti-war. Um, event uh, and thinking that they were subversive. That the uh, names of the uh, committees were the Criminal Investigation Committee or the Subversive Squad. Uh, they use those kinds of words to describe things like, uh, well, for example, one, one uh, listing is about a 1964 religious procession for civil rights. About 2,000 people were involved in one of the Detroit suburbs, and uh, was a very uh, peaceful uh, rally uh, to talk about, to, to show support for uh, for civil rights. And uh, at the end of the rally, when people were in uh, a church, uh, the, the police investigator said that an agent of the FBI was called and advised of the proceedings. And then there was a Freedom Day uh, rally in 1964 in Pontiac, sponsored by the NAACP that was spied on. Then there was another uh, march and rally in downtown Detroit to uh, support the civil rights uh, marchers who had marched from Montgomery to Selma, where they were beaten by by the cops. Uh, and uh, Rosa Parks' name is on the same list as mine and so many others, Rosa Parks, was living in Detroit at that, at, at that point. There were peace rallies, uh, 
and uh, there were meetings sponsored by different groups like the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which I was active in, uh, protesting the U.S. embargo of Cuba and the Bay of Pigs invasion, by the Detroit Labor Forum, which sponsored that Pete Seeger concert, uh, and by a number of other groups. Uh, they were unpopular groups, perhaps, but they were not illegal by any means. And there are a lot of meetings of the National Peace Action Coalition, which was one of the major anti-war groups during the, uh, during the Vietnam War that were spied on and are mentioned in these files. And uh, I guess there must have been a lot of those meetings and picket lines and rallies. Uh, I don't remember all of them, but uh, every one that I attended, uh, there is a, uh, there's a listing. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really phenomenal, actually. Um, and and as we know, um, you know that kind of spying on progressives. It's not. It wasn't new in the '40s and '50s. It had been going on forever, I suppose, uh, and it continues to this day. Uh, <coughs> we know that you know er, you know every once in a while we hear about spies. I I always felt I didn't always. I mean, it, I sort of became aware through some other folks that I was working with, you know, where when I was involved in the anti-war movement and, and some civil rights movement in the late 60s and early 70s in Sonoma County, you know, where somebody essentially, you know, one of the people I was working with essentially said, you know, there's probably somebody um, among us, shall we say, who's spying on us. And, and it was kind of it was kind of a jarring thought that, it, you know, that, it, that my point being is it's not just um, – you know, agents, but it's actually spies who infiltrate. Uh, and I'm sure that that was happening at many of the, uh, I mean, these events that you talk about, who knows uh, who the, uh, who those spies were, because none of the uh, files that you get identify who the uh, authors of these reports are. Is that correct? If you look at these, uh, the, these files sheet by sheet, every time uh, there's a, uh, name of an informer uh, or an agent that's blacked out, or in some cases in the Michigan State Police files, for example, it's actually uh, excised with a uh, with a razor or a, or, or a scissors. Uh, the names are cut out, so there's no way of knowing the names of uh, the spies or the infiltrators or the informers. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty jarring to realize that that stuff is going on, and it's just you can't allow it to... Um you can't allow it to prevent you from continuing to do the work um, that you want, that you need to do, that you feel you need to do. So, what are some of the, um, I don't know, what are some of the lessons that you think um, come out of of learning about something like this, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, that that somebody like yourself uh, was, you know, spied upon so so aggressively by the government. Well, I, I, I think that uh, the major lesson is that we, we should always be aware of that if we take unpopular positions or we're activists, uh, say, in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, or some of the uh, anti-war movements that may uh, develop uh, or have developed, uh, that there are probably people watching us. And I think a lot of those spies and uh, infiltrators are probably out of work now. They've been automated out of work because you can go into almost any city in the country and see ubiquitous uh, light that have cameras all over the place uh, taking pictures. And, you know, that with facial recognition technology uh, means that uh, they don't have to have physical presence. People, They don't have to have people 
physically present to spy on you. They can use uh, all sorts of electronic uh, surveillance uh, and, uh, you know, uh, with uh, hacks into computers and and so on. You know, it's a lot easier for them to spy on us. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we need to keep in mind, you know, that some of the spying and, and you know, referring back again to the late 40s, uh, uh, and actually I saw a recent reference to uh, kind of a comparison between what's happening today with the uh, government um, basically using the video from the, the mob that inside that uh, the insurrection at the Capitol, that there was a comparison between uh, them doing that and, and what was happening um during the late 40s and early 50s when the Smith Act and other laws were used to criminalize um, members of organizations like the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. I think a big difference uh, that we have to understand is that the Smith Act criminalized the con- a conspiracy to teach and advocate the violent overthrow of the government. And to my knowledge... None of the people who were ever convicted under the Smith Act, members of the Communist Party and other people, were <clears throat> excuse me, were ever, ever convicted of actually engaging in action to overthrow the government. They were talking. It was basically yeah. they were they were convicted for their writing and their thinking and their talking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. A big, big uh contrast, a sharp contrast to what Went on in uh, on January the sixth in the Capitol building when the insurrectionists actually uh, had weapons and uh, were led, led to the death of five police officers. Uh, you know that was overt action uh, and uh, a, a big difference between uh, what the FBI is doing now to track down the people who perpetrated that and what they did back in the 1960s and 1970s against uh, peaceful and activists. Uh, but we have to remember that, uh, you know, things can turn around again, and uh, the uh, government agents that, that are currently doing a good job of uh, tracking down the right-wing terrorists uh, can turn around and uh, focus on uh, progressive people who are involved in unpopular causes uh, and demonstrations in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened uh, <clears throat> with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, ju- just yeah. uh, this this past year. And um, during the Detroit newspaper strike that you and I were both involved in in the 90s, the company hired spies to uh, photograph people and, and picketers that were photographed and workers were fired from their job. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it can always turn around. And I think basically... I think the best way that you prevent that is to try and keep electing progressives who uh, will resist that kind of thing. Uh, yes. Um, and, and will instead do what um, Parnell Thomas refused to do, and that is like go after organizations like the Ku Klux Klan rather than, I don't know, say a, a, a Women's Strike for Peace organization or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's a thin line, and we always have to be careful about um, – uh, what's happening. I know the ACLU has had some interesting position uh, in regard. There is some concern that the American Civil Liberties Union has raised around uh, the use of, uh, you know, of what's happening right now with, uh, with the, uh, the insurrectionists. But something has to be done. I mean, you can't allow these people to, uh, in my opinion, can't allow these right. people to, to just run yeah. amok. I mean, they were, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I've been watching the, 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 the impeachment hearings off and on, and, and you know, it is pretty uh, 
I mean, what, what, you know, it's like it's, it's kind of chilling to think about what if they had actually gotten a hold of Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence? I mean, there was there were people in that mob that were willing to uh, kill them. And there were as you can just tell by looking at the at the video that there were people that want that there were people behind them that were just kind of cheering them on, you know, very frightening stuff. Yep, it was. Yeah. All right. So um, I don't know. I, I know I don't have any more specific questions to ask you, Dave. I really appreciate your your taking the sure. time to talk about well, this. Uh, but I want to make sure that you have, uh, you know, anything more that you want to say. Uh, no, Michael, except uh, I really appreciate the kind of program you do. And uh, the music today, the songs today really bring back a lot of memories and uh they uh, teach us, uh, as Pete Seeger often said about songs and music, they teach us uh, about the kinds of uh, issues that ought to be important to us and uh, that we ought to be fighting uh, for. And uh, and, uh, and and, and uh, keeping hope alive is uh, is really the important thing right now. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate your words. I appreciate your ongo- your and Katie's ongoing support of of KPOV since we first went on air. Uh, we really yep. do appreciate that. And, uh, you know, someday we look forward to seeing you, uh, either out in Michigan or out here in Oregon, uh, whichever okay. way uh, we can manage uh, once the pandemic. Uh, have you gotten your second shot yet? We just got our second shot so a week mm-hmm. ago, yes. So right uh, we are thinking that it's been a little bit uh, perhaps safer and secure for us to uh, to travel again, but we'll see. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll, well, yeah. we'll be, be careful. Be careful. Yeah. So Have you gotten shots? No, I, no, no. It, it, we're scheduled for later. I, I it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know when. I don't know when it's. Uh, they got a date, but I don't believe it. So uh, okay. one la- one final question I wanted to ask you, I guess, and that's in re- because I want to play some music. Was there ever a John Birch Society uh, in uh, chapter in in Detroit? Oh yes, the yeah. John Birch Society had a chapter in Detroit and on Gratiot Avenue. They had the American Opinion Bookstore, right. which was part of a chain of John Birch bookstores from all over the country. And, yeah. uh, yes, and I, I went in there once to uh, look at their uh, at their selection and uh, turned around and walked out. Yeah, we we had one in Santa Rosa. I actually, it looks like the American Opinion Bookstore on Fourth Street in Santa Rosa, California, has closed now. But uh, yeah, listeners, I'm going to play some music, and that's why I figured that would be a good segue. It was an anti-communist organization founded by a guy named Robert Welch, who once accused uh, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower of being a communist dupe. And interestingly, Fred Koch, uh, the father of the right-wing Koch brothers, was a uh, big financial sponsor and leader of the John Birch Society. Michael, good talking with you, and uh, good luck, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.